you are going to allow your child to see it, but you are not going to force it. You are going to allow your child to feel it and you're not going to force it. And what I mean by that is you are going to allow your child to feel what unconditional love feels like versus what it feels like to have conditional love from the other parent. You are going to have a home where they get to see you following through on the things you said you'll do. So they're going to get to see integrity. And at the other home, they will get to see false promises. You are not going to require your child to take care of you. At the other home, that might be happening. So you are going to allow them to see it, feel it, hear it. Welcome to the Rising Beyond podcast, where you can find hope and healing after a toxic or abusive relationship. I'm Sybil Cummins, a licensed professional counselor specializing in working with victims and survivors of domestic violence and narcissistic abuse, including the youngest witnesses. Over the past decade, I have been honored to witness victims move to survivors and then to thriving in their lives. If you feel alone in your healing process, are dealing with the onslaught of post-separation abuse, or just needing some validation that you are not crazy, you are in the right place. Does it feel like your child has been turned against you? That the child you once knew is no longer there and they maybe are buried deep down inside, and you have no idea what to do. You truly believe that they've been brainwashed. So today, we're going to talk about what that is, and I'm going to give you some ideas and tips on how to regain your child's trust, even if it wasn't you who broke the trust. So I'm Sybil Cummins. I am the creator of the Rising Beyond podcast and the Rising Beyond community, which is a membership community for survivors of domestic violence and narcissistic abuse, um, most of which are going through the family court system. But before all that, I was trained as a play therapist. So I've been a play therapist for the last, I don't know, 13, 14 years. And so I have a little bit of a different perspective than many who work in this field because I see the child's perspective inside of things. I see what it looks like on their end. But now that I've been working with adult survivors and within the family court system, which is complete craziness and not ethical most of the time, but then I see it from that side as well. And so I want to share kind of with all of these experiences, um, not only what it is that you're experiencing, but also what are some things you can do when you're in this situation? You may be thinking the term parental alienation as what's going on. So that is a term that is thrown about left and right, and it's actually not a correct term, and it's honestly, in my opinion, kind of complete hogwash the way it has come about. And yet it seems like that language fits for so many. I actually did a podcast episode called The Myth of Parental Alienation. 
And so if you have heard the term, maybe you don't know much about it, I'd love for you to go back and listen to that. It will help you here in this discussion. And if I didn't just hop on and kind of wing these episodes, then I could tell you what episode number that is, but I cannot. So I am sorry about that. Hop right into whatever platform you're listening in and check out the episode titles, The Myth of Parental Alienation. So what are you experiencing? There are problems with all of the language in which you're experiencing. So parental alienation, major problems with it. It comes from a really dark and gross and nasty place. And it has been debunked by all of the folks doing specific research on this. And the people who are doing research on it and truly believe that it is a thing, in all of their research, it says things like, when abuse is not present, when abuse is not present. Well, guess what? In your case, abuse is likely present. And so parental alienation isn't correct. That term has really been debunked. Unfortunately, the family court system latches onto that language left and right, and it causes major problems. That's an understatement. So then the other term is domestic violence by proxy. That has a lot of problems with it, too, because the myths and misperceptions about what domestic violence are makes it so it doesn't seem like it fits, because most people believe that domestic violence is physical violence. And it's not. But that's why that language doesn't feel like it works. And then there's like the legal definitions of domestic violence. And, you know, in order to bring that into family court, a lot of times judges will want you to have convictions and things like that. And so that term causes problems too. I was chatting with a friend and a podcast guest, Joanna, and she'll I think she's on next week's episode based on when these go live in the platforms. Um, But she shared a term that they have been using in Connecticut. And I don't know what I think about it yet. I think I like it, but not totally sure. But it's coerced uh, parent-child estrangement. So I feel like that really does. Each of those words feels like it's a fit. But I'm not sure we need a label. I'm not sure we need a label. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, but I wanted to share a story. So if you've been listening and you're like, I'm not totally sure what Sybil's talking about, I have some specific families in mind where the allegations came up of or the children were experiencing parents putting them in the middle, and I have experienced where an abuser is really coercively keeping the child from the other parent, and they're doing it in these different ways. So I would, yeah, just love to share some, I guess, stories to to put context with you. So one kiddo that I worked with for a good amount of time really was put in the middle by both parents. And Was there domestic violence or narcissistic abuse within the parent relationship? Yes. Yes, I believe there was. I absolutely do. Mom did as well. And she did have some concerns for the child's safety. And there was, you know, supervised visitation time or or time where one parent actually, and I 
don't do them anymore, but I used to do therapeutic visitations, which is supervised visitation mixed with family therapy. And so I did some of those. Uh, Mom did have some concern about physical safety for the child. Initially, I had some concerns about psychological safety, but when I was working with the child kind of individually, because I think that was important in this situation, he felt absolutely put in the middle. And he didn't know about the domestic violence. He didn't witness anything. I'm sure he felt it in the home. And so he didn't understand the dynamic, but he knew he didn't feel safe really either place. And here's why. So the mom who had experienced a lot of coercive control and other elements of domestic violence, she did talk poorly about the dad. She did. And she would talk about the situation and about court while the child was present. So not directly to the child, but maybe she was having a conversation with her mom or her attorney and the child was right there listening. So he then also had some negative, scary feelings about dad. And dad did the same. And he didn't know who to believe. Now, if you're thinking about this situation, the only person that was harmed by this was the child. And so there was domestic violence. And that was from the dad onto the mom. And in this case, the mama did not do any of her own healing and any of her own work. And so the child was being negatively affected by this. Parental alienation claims were thrown about in court from both sides. It was a complete mess. And who was harmed? The child. He was angry at everyone. He was nervous and anxious all the time. He was tired. He fell asleep in my office for one session and I let him sleep for 25 minutes because he clearly needed a safe space to sleep. So that is one where the courts are saying, oh, this is a high conflict divorce. Okay, so the abuse really was one directional, unidirectional, from dad to mom. And because mom wasn't doing like the work she needed to do to heal, and she was so angry and traumatized, she was disparaging and wasn't aware of where the child was when she was talking. And so the child was negatively affected. So all around, not a good situation. Did the dad have some claims, some valid claims that the mom was doing these things? Yes. And so their case was, I'm not kidding, it was so muddy. This case was so muddy. So another case that I am thinking of, it was with a teen teen girl. There was horrific domestic violence and financial abuse and coercive control between mom and dad for this child's whole life and before that. And this mama, she decided to leave because she started seeing the abuse. She was doing therapy and she was really working on getting her finances and things together. And during her work, the dad basically had the daughter come live with him 
And initially the mom was like so overwhelmed that she was like, that's fine. Let's figure out a parenting plan, whatever. Well, in this short amount of time and actually before the separation actually happened, the dad was putting all of his stuff, all of his emotional stuff onto the daughter. So made it her job to take care of him and did talk all about mom's history of alcohol abuse, which was a part of her history and really started to have the girl question her mom and it worked. And so the daughter did really push away and resist seeing mom. The tricky part in this, and I share this with you because it was a really bad outcome, is the mom worked so hard and she continued to work and she went to therapy. She went to the reunification therapy, which this reunification therapist was actually really good and saw what dad was doing and started bringing that into the room. And it was going great. And then there was a major blow in the case and mom started drinking. And because of that, she basically proved dad right. And so in this case, the teen did not go see mom anymore and she refused to see her mom. This was years and years ago, but it was a really hard case because it was so apparent, the abuse from dad to mom. But because dad had spun this narrative and had been spinning the narrative throughout this child's life and mom started drinking again because of the trauma and she didn't have all the skills she needed, the daughter was like, oh, see, dad is right. I trust dad. Yuck. Do you see how that happens? It's super gross and it can happen. And so I hope that if you're like listening that you're not in that space of not having contact with a child because of something similar to what I've said. And I hope you're also not in a space where you are, because you're so angry, because you have trauma, putting your child in the middle. Because our court system will then deem it high conflict no matter what you do, no matter where the domestic violence is, no matter if there's a conviction or no conviction. If you are putting your child in the middle, the judge will see you as a major part of the problem. They might see you as a major part of the problem anyways, because they don't have the education. So in all of these cases, the child is, is harmed, right? It is coercively controlling that child in different ways. So what can you do? First and foremost, you need to take care of yourself. If you don't have skills to cope with the intensity of what you're going through, you need to do your work and meet with a therapist, go to a group, join a community. You need to do everything you can because if you prove your abusive partner's narrative of you, so you prove them right, the child will not trust you and they will likely push you away and not want to see you. And we don't want you to be in that position because that's heartbreaking. And it's really, really hard to gain that trust back. And so if you are in the position where you really feel like 
you word vomit every time they come back for a visit or they're headed to a visit or anytime you get that email or that message in your co-parenting app, you feel like you need a drink. You need to do some work so that you don't put your children in this position. You need to show up in ways that refute the narrative of your abusive ex-partner all the time, all the time. It is not fair. It is not fair that you are going to have to work hard, this hard, after being abused. It's absolutely not fair. And it's what's important for you and your child. If your dad says, you know, oh, mom won't show up or vice versa, dad won't show up, he doesn't care, guess what? You show up. Even if you don't have contact with them because they are refusing to see you or there's a court order where you can't see them. Unfortunately, I have several cases in that position. You're still going to show up. You are going to learn everything you can about how your child is doing, who your child is, if you can. So if you have access to their school information, if you're a biological parent and there's no specific orders against that, you can get that information about how they're doing in school. You know, are they excelling in math? Are they excelling in reading? Are they struggling with behavior? Whatever it is, you are going to show up to anything you said you will show up to and not in this creepy, threatening way. If they are not interested in seeing you right now and they have, I don't know, a band concert, you'll show up to listen and you won't try to go up to them. You are going to do what you say without putting pressure. Because if we think about the other side, there is always pressure. That's right, coercion. There's always coercion. And so you, because there's unconditional love, can show up for them even if they're not showing up for you because you care about them unconditionally. Are you going to be heartbroken? Yes. Absolutely. To show up to, you know, a child's soccer game, you're watching kind of from afar. Maybe they see you, but you're, you don't approach them after the game because you know it will cause major problems or cause them anxiety or cause them stress, then you don't do it. This is why so many of the clients that I have worked with who are not in their child's life in some way, they are not the ones forcing reunification camps or anything like that because they care about the best interests of their child. And they know that something like reunification camps aren't, that's not in the best interest of their child, right? So find ways to learn about your child. I have had several of my clients kind of once a month, they write a letter to their child I'm about what they're wondering about what's going on in their life, but it really is a, I am always thinking about you. That's the message. I am always thinking about you. And they have these letters for them. They're not sending them for the most part. I've had one or two send them, but then when there is a chance to connect and you get to show them you are not who their other parent says that you are, they will see that you've been wanting to be with them the whole time. So what do you do in a court situation? Well, so this is where the label comes in. I don't actually think we need a label. I know labels are easier to figure out, but they can also be rebranded to be used 
inappropriately. Or courts don't understand what you're talking about. Like they think this one thing about the label and you believe it's something else. So instead, I want you to describe the behaviors. So especially if you're early on, you still have contact with your child, but they're maybe saying horrible, hurtful things to you and you're noticing this huge change in behaviors. And maybe they've said, well, well, mom said X, Y, and Z or dad said X, Y, and Z about you. You are going to document and describe the behaviors. So maybe it's father of child disparages me in front of the children. And then guess what? You can't just say that. You have to give examples with dates, times, right? You've got to find evidence of it. Otherwise, it's he said, she said. If you have evidence of this, that's really the only way the courts take a look at it. So that's one thing. So you are describing the behaviors. You're describing how your child is reacting to what happened. Because if you can show that what one parent is doing is negatively affecting your child and you have evidence of this, that goes a lot longer of a way in court than really anything else. If you still have access to your kiddos and there's joint decision making, get your child into an expressive type of therapy. And by expressive therapy, I'm talking art therapy, play therapy, music therapy, something that is much more difficult to coach. That is really, really helpful. And it allows your child to be in a space where they don't have to tell everything that's going on and everything that happens. They can heal a different way. They can get safe support a different way. You are going to allow your child to see it, but you are not going to force it. You are going to allow your child to feel it, and you're not going to force it. And what I mean by that is you are going to allow your child to feel what unconditional love feels like versus what it feels like to have conditional love from the other parent. You are going to have a home where they get to see you following through on the things you said you'll do. So they're going to get to see integrity. And at the other home, they will get to see false promises and the lack of integrity. You are not going to require your child to take care of you. At the other home, that might be happening. So you are going to allow them to see it feel it, hear it. You're not going to talk bad about the other parent. You can, in short, brief ways, tell your child what their other parent said is not true. You can say what your dad told you about X, Y, and Z is actually not accurate, period. The older they get, the more questions they're going to have about that. So developmentally, um, you've got to really know kind of where your child is at developmentally. That would be like a whole hour-long podcast of figuring out how to talk to kids in different stages. But that is the number one goal is get yourself help, get yourself okay, because this is really hard. I think this is one of the most heartbreaking things about these cases is when the child is really used against you. And then get that kiddo into therapy, and then you are going to show them that you are different from what their other parent told them you are. So I hope this was helpful. I feel like it was a little discombobulated and I was like randomly talking and telling stories. But since I was asked several questions, I had some time. I thought I'd hop on and record 
this episode. So if you have any questions or maybe you need support, reach out info at risingbeyondpc.com. You can get me directly there and you know you can find some support here in the Rising Beyond community. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening or whenever you're listening to this and we will catch you on the next episode of the Rising Beyond podcast. If you're healing from relationship abuse and are looking for support and sisterhood during this journey, I'd love to invite you to the Rising Beyond community where you will get expert guidance, connection with others going through similar experiences, and a safe place where you'll always feel seen, heard, and believed. To learn more and to join, go to www.risingbeyondpc.com. We'd love to be a part of your healing journey.